Thanks for listening to the High Street Young Adults Podcast. For more information and how to get connected, check out highstreet.org slash youngadults. Are you guys excited to be here tonight? I mean, we just, I want to do something. This isn't even in the notes right now, but I just want you to take a second. First, everyone in the room, let's just breathe in and then breathe out real quick. Can you guys do that with me? Ready? One, two, three. Now take a second and do kind of like a 360. Look around the room at the faces that are here tonight. God is doing something incredible. Do you guys see that? I mean, this doesn't happen everywhere. I mean, I I don't have much life experience compared to some of you beautiful people in the back. We love you. Thank you for being here tonight. Um, But I've been to a few places. I've been to a few countries, and very rarely do I see what God has blessed you guys with here tonight. Very rarely do you see committed leaders showing up early. Can you, I mean, people aren't even getting paid to do this. Why? Why do we do that? Well, I think it's because of what we sung tonight. There is only one name who has conquered the grave. There is only one way our soul can be saved, and we believe that is in the name of Jesus Christ. So I just want you guys to take a second. I mean, it's the last young adults of this semester but that doesn't mean God is done working. And so tonight, we're gonna be talking about the lifelong hurdle. How many of you guys maybe in here have participated in track and field? How many of you guys have been demolished by a hurdle before? See, I'm too smart. I know I'm not gonna do hurdles because I'd embarrass myself. But there are things in life that we participate in and we, when we participate in these things, there's something about us that determines if the experience will be worth the risk. I mean, we, we do that. Maybe it's for trying out for a team, or maybe it's for a specific event, but the things that we participate will dictate what happens. Oftentimes, there's this thing in our minds that says, you know what, I probably shouldn't do that. Probably because the danger that I'm going to experience or maybe even the fear that I'll experience will not be as good as the outcome. Therefore, I'm going to take myself out. And we see this. Like if maybe tonight, if I said, hey, right after service, the real after party is we're going to actually have a helicopter in the parking lot and anybody who wants to skydive can skydive. How many of you guys are like, I'm in? Let's see. We got a few hands, a few brave people. And then you other people are like, you are psycho. Why? We, I mean, we've heard a lot of people say the experience of skydiving is like unlike anything else. And yeah, you get nervous. And, and, and yeah, you get in the helicopter and you're like, will I come out of this? I don't know. But when you finally land, the experience that you felt was worth the fear. But some of us would count ourselves out. We would willingly withdraw from the experience that we could have because the fear or the danger would be far too great. And so recently, I mean, I, I've been skydiving. I'm not an, an incredible junkie, but my, my brother saw a Groupon uh, for some discounted skydiving, so he said, why not? Groupon, shout out, sponsor young adults if you're watching. Um, but there was something that Kelsey and I watched, a documentary about three months ago that my palms still sweat to this day. And I think you guys understand, I will willingly withdraw from experiencing the joy that some say that this brings because of how psycho I think you gotta be. 
So if, if we could put that picture up on the screen. Have you guys seen the documentary Free Solo? Raise your hand if you've seen that. And now the, the sweat in your palms is starting to come back. This guy, he, there's like something missing in his brain. But he was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm a free solo climber, which means that you climb without any safety precautions, without any ropes, without anything to anchor you into a wall. Why? I don't know, maybe the experience that he's going to get from it. And so he said, you know what, I'm going to hike or climb up uh, what very few people have ever attempted and even that very many people have died from. And that is to, to, to climb up this peak called El Capitan, about 3,000 feet in the air. And the documentary is, is him that he, he's planned it all out. He's mapped it out. And then he gets to it and he, he tries it. He scales it a few times, but with some safety precautions, being roped in. And, and then there are a few times where he approaches it and he's like, you know what? I'm going to do this. It, today's the day. And then he backs out. He's like, I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for it. And so it takes him a few days for him to muster up enough courage to recognize that he's ready. Now, I don't know about you, but there are three reasons, at least three reasons, why I will never, ever participate in this. The first is, I enjoy living. Simply put, I like being alive. The second is, uh, whenever I get nervous, my palms sweat. Anybody else? Do you feel with a brother tonight? And uh, it's not like, a, not like a rushing river, but it's like you leave the sink on drip. This thing leaves my fingers and my hands on drip. And the third thing is, is I have the grip strength of about a second grade Girl Scout. But if you're a Girl Scout and you're watching, that, the no shame. We live on your frozen Thin Mints. Any Thin Mint fans? Yeah. Raise your hand if you like Samoas. We're going to pray for you. Those are the worst cookies that the Girl Scouts have to offer. But I would willingly drop out. I will willingly take myself out of experiencing the rush or the joy that I would experience doing this incredible stunt because I've, I've counted the cost. It's not worth it. I would die. The danger, the fear that I would experience climbing El Capitan is way out, outranks and way uh, overestimates uh, what I would experience as a reward. You, you know what I'm saying? And I think likewise, as we talk about the lifelong hurdle tonight, many of us will miss out on the full life with and in Christ because we're terrified of fully participating in this specific action. And some of you are asking, well, well what is that action? Well, let, let, let's think of it like this. If the beautiful and full life of Christ, some of you hear about it all the time from your friends, some of you hear it all the time from your family, and let's take this full life of Christ as a race, then the Bible says there is a hurdle that many people will never cross. And even as a believer in Jesus, there is this reoccurring hurdle in our lives that if we don't continually face and get over with the help of God, we will live a life that is enslaved, impaired, and ineffective. It's that serious. So in honor of our last young adults meeting of the semester, as God is kind of putting a close on this semester, I believe he really is opening up a door. A door of opportunity for you guys to do some damage for the kingdom here in Springfield and as you guys disperse all throughout the world. But... 
We must yield to this command. We must approach this hurdle and have confidence and not back up and become idle and impaired. But so many of us who claim to be a Christian, who, who claim to love the Christian life, refuse to participate in this very thing. I believe God can use this group, if we just had this entire room participate in the event that we're talking about tonight, we could flip this world upside down. But you have to conquer it. Tonight we're talking about the importance of repentance and the importance of confession. And it's difficult, I know, because as soon as I said that, your immediate thought is to the secret sin that maybe you've never shared with anybody. Or maybe there's a sin that was committed towards you that you've never shared with anybody. Or maybe you became a Christian, but you thought it was all about putting on a front and putting on a show, and you've never actually repented and confessed before, and so you're feeling the weight of that. Can I just identify with you right now? I've been there. Recently, I've been there. But if we were going to be a people ever to see a move of God, I believe first we must humble ourselves before him and repent and confess daily. A beautiful quote I heard that I've never forgotten is, the more you grow in your faith, you don't repent less, you repent more. And why is that? Well, if we think about the Bible character Isaiah, when he was before God, in the presence of God, he said, what? I am unclean. I'm undone. And this God who is perfect and holy and loving and merciful is far beyond our reach, yet he made it possible through Jesus. And the closer we get to him, the more we realize that we are undone. And so I want to pray for us tonight. And as I'm praying, may, maybe this is your first time coming to church ever. Maybe this is your first time coming to young adults ever. Or maybe you've been following Jesus and there is that secret sin or there is this habit that you believe that nobody can find out about. Would you pray with me that God would move in your heart tonight? And I believe God can do something incredible as we humble ourselves before him and we ask for his help. Would you guys pray with me? Father, we are grateful that you sent Christ to die on a cross for our sins, that we might have a relationship with you. We can come boldly before your throne only because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And when we think of and when we look to your word and we're enamored by your holiness, we look inwardly at ourselves and we are undone. But we're humbled at the fact that you choose to use people to reach people and we want in. So would you help us? Would we humble ourselves tonight? Would we repent of the sin that we've committed? Would we confess it to someone that we know and love and trust? And would you move miraculous through us as we trust you in that? We believe only your name, only your power can save. And we certainly believe that you are in the business of changing lives. So would you do that here tonight? We need you desperately. Would you speak through your word? 
And in Christ's precious name we pray, amen. So if you want to open your Bibles up to Jeremiah chapter 4, I'll kind of give you guys a catch up to that as you're flipping uh, in your Bibles or maybe you're using uh, your phones on the Bible app. Uh, Either is great, access to God's word. Jeremiah is a book, shocker here, written by Jeremiah. Had some help from uh, another guy, but this is the account and the life of Jeremiah. Now he was called, you see this in chapters one and two, he was called to an extremely difficult task, the task of a prophet. Now a prophet, his job, uh, Jeremiah in particular, was to speak on behalf of God. What an incredible task. What a, what a fear, fearful task. And that's exactly what Jeremiah experienced. He was fearful. He started coming up with excuses. And God specifically spoke to him and said, do not basically bow out or tap out because you're young. He's like, I know you've got excuses, but I'm with you. And so this is Jeremiah. His job is to confront the nation of Judah for the sin that they've committed. And I think if anything tonight, you're like, well, how, how does this Old Testament book of Jeremiah, this, this prophet who lived far before I ever did, how in the world is that going to apply to my life? Well, I'll, I'll kind of expose the ending right away. This is a very dark chapter in the sense where Judah is committing two incredible sins that we'll talk about here shortly, and they did not repent. And because of that, they faced the consequences of an invasion of a nearby city called Babylon. And I think if you and I can look at this story, we'll see a couple things. We'll see the character of God, we'll see the sin of a nation, and we'll see the consequences of an unrepentant heart. And if anything, we can take this as a warning. We can know. That there is grace and that there is mercy for those who come before God and repent of their sin. And there are also consequences for those who choose to live life apart from God. And so Jeremiah, a prophet to the nation of Judah, is speaking on, on behalf of God. Now they're guilty of two major sins here. I don't know, do we have any Stumo people in the house? All three of you, nice, incredible. So you guys might be familiar with uh, this verse is that the sins of Judah were this. This is in chapter two, verse 13. You can or cannot uh, flip there if you desire. Uh, For my people have committed two evils, the first. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters. And the second, they've hewn or they've dug out for themselves cisterns broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what does that mean? What are the sins of this nation? Specifically, this is a God who graciously made Israel a nation, made Judah a nation. Like it wasn't because of anything that they did, but simply because of the grace of God that he said, you know what, Abraham, I am actually going to make you into a great nation. And God sustained them. God provided for them. Even in their disobedience, God carried this nation along. And here is the only nation that God has chosen to call his people in this Old Testament context. And yet, they've forsaken him. 
They've said, you know what? Like, I, I, look, I know what you've done for us. I, I know, in the, like, I remember Exodus. I remember coming out of Egypt. I remember the, the Red Sea uh, splitting. But you know what? Instead of trusting you, I, I'm just going to actually ditch you to the wayside. So the equivalent here, which we see in the cistern picture, is that would you rather, and this is, this is a question that applies directly to it, would you rather drink water from a cold flowing spring with no bacteria that continually provides for you? Or do you prefer, for us to better understand this, to dig a hole into the ground, wait for it to rain, and then cup up the water from there? I think it's a no-brainer. We would rather drink from the, the river that flows constantly and that is good and that is cold and it's refreshing. And this is the connection. This is the imagery that God is painting for this nation. Instead of coming to me, this would be God calling out to them. Instead of coming to me, you've chosen to worship idols. And these idols, these false gods are not gods at all. But I'm the only one true living God. And you've chosen to turn away from me. These were the sins of Judah. Pretty severe. And, and God uses some uh, incredible language in order to talk about the coming consequences to this nation unless they would turn to him. And I think this is beautiful. Like we could think of a, a, a ton of ways that this could go. And God is fully uh, just in judging this nation how they ought and before doing that, God offers incredible grace. We see this in chapter four, verses one through three. This is the grace that God offers a disobedient nation despite their evil doings. He says in verse one, if you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return to me and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. See, this is incredible. For how long that Israel, and I mean Israel being the northern kingdom and now Judah the southern kingdom, for how long both of them have been disobedient, God is still offering them grace. And this is what confuses me. Anyone who says like, man, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, they're completely different people. I just think you haven't read the Bible before. Because here God is saying, despite all of their evil doings, but, but despite all of their sin, if you would just return to me, God would wipe the slate clean. God loves sinners who repent. And this is, this is the glory of God. This is the grace of God. God alone has the power to forgive like this. The Hebrew word there for return is shov, which means to return and to come back to the starting point. See, God established them. God made them a great nation. God provided them for them. God was the grace and the mercy for them. And he's just saying, come back to me. And of course, as I let the cat out of the bag, we know that that didn't happen. But the first thing I want us to recognize already from tonight is our first point, if you're taking notes. Repentance must acknowledge that you're lost. 
See, Judah, they did not repent mostly because they believed they weren't lost. They haven't wandered from God. Many of the the priests and the prophets, which you'll see in chapter 6 and chapter 23, were saying, you know what? This is actually a time of peace. God won't judge us. God's not going to judge us because his presence resides. Like, we're his people. But that's not the reality. Is that these people were faking as if their relationship with God was fine when in all reality they were lost. So in order for us to understand repentance, we need to understand that all of us have sinned and we are lost. And we are in desperate need of God's forgiveness. See, in in verse 4, as we go on, skipping, uh, or actually continuing on, it says, and take away, now this will, I know, it's going to take a little bit of explanation, and take away the foreskins of your heart. You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it. Because of what? Because of the evil of your doings. Now God, uh, starting with Abraham, which we can actually read about in Romans 4, God graciously made Israel a nation and to show for them then to identify as God's people, they would circumcise their children. And so this was not something that they were embarrassed to talk about, a little bit different in our atmosphere. I know it's a little quiet out there. No one said, amen. Yeah, that would have been a little strange. But so what we see here is this is how they identified as God's people. And what's God saying? He's saying, you are getting really good at acting the part, but your heart is not for me. So the second thing that I think we need to understand about repentance is that repentance begins with what's internal. I think we, we get really good. Maybe, maybe you've been in church for a long time. Maybe you're a pastor's kid. Maybe you're a missionary kid. Maybe you're a Bible college student. Or, or maybe you're just hanging around a crowd that really, is really good at acting the part. We get really good at fooling people. But God is never fooled. Humans, us, we look at the exterior, but what does God see? God sees the heart. And so what does repentance require? It's not about how many young adult services that you're checking on your list that you've attended. It's not how many times have you come to church. It's not, ooh, how many scriptures did you memorize this week? Although those in themselves are great things. God wants your heart. And this is why so many times Jesus, when he would confront people in the New Testament, he would go after or talk about or bring up the one thing that he knew had their heart, like the rich young ruler. In order to be saved, is it really all about selling all of your possessions and giving them to the poor? Although God might lead you to do that thing, that's not how we're saved. We sing about it. But Jesus knew what stood in between this man and a relationship with God was the thing that had his heart, and that was his wealth. See, it's impossible for us. And this, it sounds like bad news, but it's really great news. It's impossible for us to work our way to God. And the good news is, is that God knew that. He didn't leave us in our brokenness, but he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins so that if we would recognize that we're sinners, Andrew Perez, that I am a sinner and I need someone to save me. That's the internal repentance. It's not about the exterior things that you do. It's about an internal heart change towards God. 
Then if you'll look at verse six, it says, set up the standard towards Zion. Take refuge, do not delay, for I will bring disaster from the north, a great destruction. This is a direct reference to Babylon that would actually invade in a generation or so. See, Babylon was located in the east, but the way that it was strategic for them to invade was to come up through the north. But what is, what is the, the thing that we can glean from this is that there are consequences to our actions. And what is God doing here? For, for the Israelite, for, for those who were living in Judah, this was sounding crazy from the mouth of Jeremiah. You're saying that God is going to use the, the people that are furthest from God to come in and teach us a lesson? Like, th- there is no way. But God is big enough. God is strong enough to even allow the evil in humanity to be used for his glory. But there are consequences for the things that we do. In verse 10 it says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying you shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. What, what do we take from this? Is, is God a deceiver? Is that what this verse is teaching? But yet, if, if we look at in chapter 6 and in chapter 23, the only ones who were actually proclaiming peace were the false prophets. What were they trying to get this nation to think? You're good. You're fine. We're playing the part. Everything physically looks good. God, God isn't going to judge us. God isn't going to bring condemnation. God isn't going to bring someone uh, that is going to basically give us what we deserve because we're God's people. This is a time of peace. But repentance does something else. These prophets, these priests, the people who were supposed to be the guiders of the nation were speaking of a reality that wasn't actually there. And repentance understands this. That repentance, number three, never downplays sin. And I, I think, I mean, this is, this is a, a tough truth to swallow because our society and our world is speaking a different message. It's like, oh man, it's okay. you know what, you, you, you made a mistake, that's okay. You know, it doesn't actually matter. But the way that the Bible is describing sin, it's severe, How do we know how serious sin is? Let's look at the cross. I heard in one of our past Sunday messages in Granbury, Texas, one of our pastors, Lonnie Short, said, the most expensive thing in the world is sin. It's not the mansions, it's not the cars, it's your sin. Because the only person who could pay it was Jesus Christ and he did it with his life. Our sins are an incredible deal. And when we repent, when we turn from our ways and we turn towards God, we're acknowledging that our sin is a big deal. But God is big enough to forgive it. And then when we uh, read also in verse 14, it says, O Jerusalem, wash your hearts from wickedness. That what? that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? 
And I, I've heard this question a few times. Man, what, what is the difference between temptation and sin? And I think this passage actually makes it incredibly clear for us. You can have a thought into your mind, but when do you allow it to lodge? Think, think of your mind like a bed and breakfast. How many of you guys have ever stayed in an Airbnb before? I mean, it's incredible. They just let you wreck their house for, no, I'm just joking, don't wreck Airbnb's houses. If you do, invite me first. Um, but your mind is like an Airbnb. And there are things that are desiring to stay there and to lodge there. Who do you let in? Maybe one that not, people, not many people would talk about from day to day. If, if you're maybe even a married man here in the audience, when you see a woman that is attractive that isn't your wife, and that thought comes knocking on your door, what do you do with it? If you're a single guy, I guess I can uh, kind of point out the guys because I am one. When you see an attractive girl and that thought comes into your head, what do you do with it? Do you allow it to run wild? Do you open that door? Do you set up the bed? Do you put even a, a mint on the pillow? Do you make everything look incredible because you're gonna allow that thing to stay for as long as it wants? Or, or maybe you're wrestling with this. Should I live with my boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage? It's a thought. It enters your head. It's the temptation. But what do you do with it? Maybe alcohol is your, is your crippling sin. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's deceit. Maybe it's cheating. When those thoughts come into your head, what do you do? Do you allow them in to lodge or do you slam the door, lock it, shut the blinds, flip your sign from open to close and do you shout, sorry, there's no room for you here. But if the Bible is true, then Romans 3.23 says we've all sinned. There's been a time in all of our lives where we've allowed sin, sinful thoughts, sinful habits to lodge in our lives. And this is the same of the disobedient Judah. See, in verse 19, we really get the heart of Jeremiah, which I can attest to is the heart of your leaders here at Young Adults. I can attest that this is the leader of the youth group here. This is the leader of the church. They feel the way that Jeremiah feels towards this disobedient nation. What is it? In verse 19, oh my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, oh my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Jeremiah's heart is in anguish. Why? Because he understands that there is a judgment that is coming for the sin that this nation refuses to repent for. Sin is painful. Sin appears to be good, and then it leads you to destruction. Sin creates in itself something that's so small, and then you dabble in it from here and there, and then you realize years down the line that it has a hold on your life. See, this reveals something about sin and about how it relates to repentance. It's point number four. 
Sin leads to destruction and pain, while repentance always leads to life. See, repentance is this turning away from the sin. It's, man, here is, here is where I was walking, and, and here is the, the path that I was going, committing this sin, and the repentance is turning around and saying, you know what, God, God, forgive me. And yet, confession is something a little bit different. This is the part that really, really is the struggle, because we like to play the part, is confession happens horizontally. Repentance is, God, forgive me for watching pornography. Confession is going to a trusted brother and sister in Christ and saying, would you pray for me and help me keep me accountable? I have been victim of pornography again. That's difficult. I mean, that's what a courageous guy does. It doesn't take a lot of courage to throw a football, although we might attribute that to manhood. Maybe I'm just using that excuse because I suck at throwing a football. But what's, true, what's truly courageous, what's really brave, what really marks manhood, what really marks womanhood is this ability to understand and to recognize that we have sinned. And because of that, we want to repent to God, which is vertically, and then we want to confess that so that we would be as far away from it as possible. That takes courage. And I think that's the hurdle that we're facing. See, and even though this chapter, which we see that Judah does not end up repenting to God, but they continue on in their sin, there is yet a glimmer of hope. This is in verse 27, if you would turn your eyes there. It says, For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate. That's talking about Babylon coming in and invading but then it says what? Yet I will not make a full end. It'd be easy for us to kind of read over that and kind of not really understand what's going on there. But when we look back, what do we begin to acknowledge? Is that the promise that God made all the way back in Genesis 3.15, the promise that he made to Abraham, the promise that he said he would fulfill even through David, was that he would send a Messiah through this line. Why does God not send the Babylonians in to completely annihilate these people? Because if, the Ju if Judah was annihilated, if the Assyrians even uh, annihilated uh, Israel when they had the chance, then all the way down the line, Jesus Christ would not be born and we would have no forgiveness of our sins. This is the grace of God. God has every right to completely wipe out this nation and yet he doesn't. Because he knew thousands of years later there would still be people born who were sitting at a young adult service who are swimming in their sin and who are understanding that there is no life in the sin that we're chasing and maybe we tried to seek satisfaction in a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a job career or, or maybe it's in how much money we make or, or maybe if we can just have kids like that will make us happy and instead we are turning to everything else except for the God who has died for us. But he said, you know what, I'm still gonna send Christ to die for the sins of the world so that anyone who believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. This is the grace of God that we see in verse 27. And this is our fifth point. 
Our fifth and final point as we look at what is the last thing that this passage helps us understand about not only the character of God, but principles of repentance. It's that repentance is available to you today. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're like, Andrew, you just, you don't know my story. You don't know what I've gone through. You don't know the things that I've committed. And you, you don't know the sins that I've committed that I've actually never even told anybody about. And if anybody knew here what I did, they would laugh me out of this church. Well, one, I can promise you that's not true. Because all young adults is, are, is a bunch of broken people who have sinned that have been forgiven by God. And so I would say, you know what, you, you got me. I don't know your story. I don't know the deep, dark things that you've never even told those who are closest to you. But God does. And Jesus didn't quit halfway to the cross. He went all the way. Because the cost of sin is the most expensive thing in the world, and he paid it for you. And so if you think about it this way, as, as we look at Judah, the more that Judah was sinning, you could kind of picture this as a cup or a chalice, if you may, filling up with the wrath of God. And at a specific time in history, which when the Babylonians came and invaded, that cup of wrath that God had would be poured out and Judah would face the consequences of their sins. And that's exactly what happened. And now if you take this at an individual level, if the Bible is true, and I believe it is, then Andrew Perez, I'll be the first one to say, I have sins in my life. And I sinned in a way where I was storing up wrath in God's cup for me. And we have something to do with that. It's our fault. It's my fault that I sinned. But God can pour and has poured that cup out on the person of Jesus Christ. And he said, Andrew Perez, if you will repent and come to me in faith, Jesus is the one who can save you. And I said, yes. I had nothing to bring to the table. I've done nothing good. There's nothing that I could do that could win a relationship with God that can win a ticket to heaven. It's only through Jesus. And the lies of the world are gonna tell you this as we think back to our illustration in the beginning. Is the reward of repenting and confessing worth the full life of Christ? And I am pleading with you and saying, yes, it is. The world is gonna tell you, don't do it. It'll ruin your rep reputation. People at church will find out. They'll start treating you different. Your small group, ooh, you're gonna start breaking up your small group. Don't confess that sin. And what does it do? It destroys us. It's as if every time we keep that in, we're drinking a sip of poison that's slowly killing us. And even as a believer in Jesus, when we don't participate in this, we're taking ourselves out of the game God is willing and ready to use anybody, and I literally mean anybody. But it's not because they have some sort of special ability or talent to offer to the table. It's somebody who comes before God and says, I have nothing to give. But would you forgive me of my sin? 
Would you use me? Would you use my story? All of the sin of my past, would you somehow use that? And I can share that story with someone who's going through the same thing and maybe they can see Christ through me. God wants to use those people. And so we have a choice. Do we want to continue to play the game and play the part and quench maybe what God is trying to do through young adults? Or do we want to live a transparent life Understanding that all of us have sinned. Nobody's free. But repenting and confessing to one another, which not only restores our relationship with God, but brings healing as we confess to one another. And so I want to make this statement for you. If you have notes or maybe you're taking them on your phone, would you just write this down? If you've forgotten everything else, would you remember this? The freedom of repentance will always be greater than the shame of your sin. But the enemy will tell you different. He'll tell you, no, actually the shame of your sin is too big. Jesus can't forgive that. Keep that in. Because like, if you confess that, it'll be all over. Everyone will leave you. And those are lies from the enemy. The repentance that you partake in is freedom. I mean, we sang about it. Jesus broke every single chain. So what could the enemy hold against you? Nothing. That's the beauty of it. This is what God was just desiring that Judah would recognize, that they would just return to him. But instead, they chose to do it their own way. And we've got the same opportunity tonight. And so maybe you're asking, okay, Andrew, but what do I do? I just want to leave you with three things. The first is, it's pretty simple. Repent and return or turn to God. If you're here for the first time or maybe the first time in a while, or maybe you just would say, you know what, Andrew? I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Like I know I've sinned and I know the Bible is true that all of us have sinned, but... I still don't know Jesus as my personal savior. Don't take my word for it. But would you hear the words spoken first to Judah but then echoed into the New Testament? Return to me. Similarly, we hear it in the New Testament. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you trust Jesus tonight? Because the freedom of repentance will always be greater than the shame that you feel of your past. The second thing would be confess that repented sin, confess that repented sin and forgiven sin to a godly friend. This is the difficult part. This is even the ones, if we would call ourselves Christians, most of us don't do this. Like we'll say like, you know what, actually the sin that I'm gonna confess to you guys, I actually served way too much and because of that, I only was able to actually reach a few people, so I'm just gonna confess that. But would you maybe confess to a trusted brother and sister in Christ the deepest, darkest sin that you've never told anybody? Because when you keep that in, man, it's like you're enslaved. But when you confess that, the book of James tells us there is healing that takes place. And man, if you are that trusted friend 
would you show that you actually love them and lovingly call out their sin? That's difficult too, because so many of us want to just jump to the gun and call them a sinner and kind of make yourself look better than them. Would you come alongside them and lovingly confront their sin? And I know what you're thinking, but man, what if it breaks up our friendship? Like, what if things are awkward? What if obedience wasn't determined by the outcome? What if we just want to obey God and we're going to do it in love and whatever happens, happens, but one day we will all stand before God and we'll have to give an account of our lives. Would we love our friends enough to lovingly confront them about sin? Because repentance takes it serious. And then lastly, would we get involved with our local church? I think there's incredible danger when we isolate ourselves. The enemy loves when we isolate ourselves. We start feeding ourselves crazy thoughts and then we're in a downward spiral. But when you get involved with your local church, when you get in a small group, when you come to young adults, what are you doing? You're participating in people who are gonna speak truth and speak life into you. And you've got an opportunity to confess to one another so that God can begin healing you of the damage that you've been keeping in. Would you guys pray with me? Thank mm-hmm. you.